Davos and the World Economic Forum. What are they? What happens there? And are they going to put chips in all of our brains? Perhaps they have already. This week's episode of Intrigue Explained dives into it. Hello and welcome back to the very first edition of Intrigue Explained for 2024. We uh, took a little bit of a break over the Christmas slash holiday period, but we're back in February. And with me, like last year, not last week, is Dmitry Grzbinski, who is the director of the trade negotiations platform Explain Trade. How are you, Dmitry? I am very well after a series of injuries, illnesses, and various... Oh, we're going to get to that. Don't you worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, you're back as always. Good Christmas break for you. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I was just in Washington, D.C., so I feel like whenever you have an orphan Christmas, it's never all that fun, but managed to make it good. Excellent. Well, Helen's obviously the co-founder of International Intrigue. I'm John Fowler, playing pseudo sort of conversation facilitator here. And uh, we're all ex-Australian diplomats, as you may well know by now, which we think gives us some sort of authority to talk about the world, whether it does or not is a matter for all the listeners. But today we're going we're gonna to kick off 2024. You know, the start of 2024, January, start of any year really, is a bit of a chance for, I think, folks to get together and think about the year just passed, the year coming up, do some planning, do some predicting, obviously with uh, very mixed results. But one of those events is Davos. This is the kind of much maligned, hated in the uh, in, in the pages of the Guardian kind of <laughs> mountaintop retreat that happens every January. World's richest and arguably most influential people come together in a ski town to discuss things. Now, I say things, I'm being deliberately vague because I've never been, but Dimitri, you've been multiple times and Helen, you went this year you're, and you're just back from it. So why don't we start with you, Helen? Just She's only now line. sobering up from the last party, exactly. which is why we're, we're doing this. Yeah, exactly. Davos. That's right. Exactly. Only just recovering, recovering from Davos. Well, actually, so I mean, it's actually called, the thing that people do there is formally, I guess, titled the World Economic Forum. Is it not called that officially anymore? I think it is called the World Economic Forum, but I think people refer to it as Davos. Just call it Davos, right. The World Economic Forum is both the organization that puts it on, and this is called like the World Economic Forum's like annual retreat at Davos Clusters or something. That's right. There you go. You got the full technical rundown. But yeah, this was my first year going as an individual, just a pleb. And I think we can go into that later in terms of like what category of people or what kind of category of hotel pass or whatever badges you hold. But I went really to sort of observe and take it all in. And, and also we had uh, Schmidt Futures, my other organization, had hosted a, uh, an event there. So I sort of took it all in and learned about AI and how it impacts planetary health. Okay, Dimitri, you've been a few times. Very general impressions. Do you like it? Do you hate it? Do you think it's useful? Okay, so the context is when I was there, because I am not a globalist usurper cuck, I was there <laughs> assisting a minister under orders for the Australian government. <laughs> On duress. And not as part of a one world conspiracy. It is an absolutely terrible experience. It is hard to overstate. For people who have never seen this place, who don't have a good visual of it, it is a village, a fairly small village on top of a mountain that in January is frozen and iced over and has precisely one road that runs through it in a loop. And this town is overrun by thousands of visitors when normally it's kind of a fairly sleepy village of, I don't know, a couple of hundred. 
The entire place gridlocks. Everything is overrun with Swiss troops. It is cold. No one can get anywhere. And everyone attending is used to having everything done for them, but is struggling to be served in that way up there. That's right. So you're you're pretty anti-Davos purely because of the logistics and the weather. <laughs> yeah, l- listen, listen, absolutely. It is a nightmarish experience to attend, <laughs> but people keep going because it has value to them. I think we need to paint a picture here, though, Dimitri, right? I mean, you've painted that like mountaintop town. It's really picturesque, right? Some people think it kind of looks like the Grand Budapest Hotel with this like huge hotel on top of the the top of the uh, funiculator that takes, is it, what is it called, that little thing? Uh, the the trap. Yeah, funicular. But it's, you know, all the shop fronts along this promenade are completely evacuated for that period, right? All these businesses, bakeries, cafes, clothes shops move out. So then businesses or governments and countries can rent the space and host their sort of, you know, I guess, um, show and tell to the world for that period of time. It is kind of hard to overstate how intense it is to have this many people descend on the highest ski resort in Europe. Just to give people a vision of how weird it is when these companies take over these spaces, because like Facebook will come in and build a temporary structure. Right. Other companies, Palanta, uh, Peter Thiel's data thing. Or Palantir, takes yeah. Over Palantir mul- yes. Yeah. Takes over multiple shop fronts and puts on these displays where it is absolutely incomprehensible what that company does. You walk around in there, but there are people in there doing stuff. There are stalls handing out soup with brands from companies you've never heard of. I'm okay with that, Dimitri. Yeah, I I imagine you might be. The worst (laughs) thing I saw there was, I think it was, it might've been 2015. For the first time, they decided they were going to have a dedicated women's space, and they took over a storefront that was completely glass-windowed and set up like... 10 hairdryery things and proceeded <laughs> to give makeovers to people who weren't in there in full view of everyone passing on the street as their like embrace of feminism. That's uh, horrifically gendered. What if uh, what if I wanted to go and get my my hair did? We both know you don't trust anyone to touch that those golden locks. <laughs> Luscious locks. Everyone carefully arranged. But yeah, it's incredibly weird. You're both painting a fairly, uh, maybe not dystopian, but very odd kind of governmenty elite. I mean, maybe maybe it's no surprise that people like to think that it's the congregation of lizard people taking over the world because that sounds pretty like a pretty weird vibe. But Dimitri, as our, you've been a few times. What is the point of Davos, like in broad strokes? Like, what's the history of it? What was it set up to do? Maybe give folks listening because I mean, you hear about it every year, but like, what is the point? First, let me push back on the lizard person conspiracy theories. <laughs> Lizards are cold-blooded. If they were going to hold a world domination retreat, they would do it in a warm in the place. Maldives. So that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's just a ridiculous theory. And I've done my due diligence by the lizard overlords there in pushing back on it. The history of Davos is kind of funny. Schwab, who is now the leader of the web, still the leader of the web, WEF, founded it in 1971. He was a business professor at the University of Geneva. And he felt that European business leaders could learn something from US management techniques. And so he invited like 400 of them to go hang out with him at a retreat in 1971, what I think was called the European Management Forum or something. It wasn't called like the World Economic Forum yet. And it was basically like one of these like Six Sigma things where they all talk about, I don't know, I guess the modern equivalent would be like agile or how Mm. to take away people's leave. 
which would have been novel to <laughs> Europeans, to Americans, I know. <laughs> Helen maybe can, Wait, can explain exactly what leave is to our American listeners. And so it was kind of semi-fun. Like they spent half their time skiing and then they'd have like a seminar where someone would talk to them about management. And then people kind of liked it because it was basically a vacation you could have on this mountain at your company's expense where you could do really good networking, but also go skiing and sort of get drunk at night. And it kept growing from there. So the key DNA is the fact that it's a nice place with snow. Yeah, yes. it, was, it was like it is a ski resort. Like it, it it's literally right. a ski resort. I guess there's a reason that there's no massive giant conferences in Cleveland. Correct. <laughs> There are 51 weeks of the year in which Davos Gloucester's gorgeous. Visit it if you can. There's one week where I would strongly advise against it, unless you're <laughs> trying to raise VC capital or something, which I think is something we should talk about. So this thing kind of grows and grows, and eventually they start inviting political leaders. I think they had the, the president of Luxembourg, was like their first big national leader. And because it starts attracting more and more high-level people, it becomes this thing where important negotiations get done. At some point, kind of, I think it was uh, like Sharon and the head of the PLA negotiated settlements over parts of like the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Like really high level kind of conversations start happening there. And he turns this European Management Forum into the World Economic Forum and starts charging companies a membership in order to come but he keeps it exclusive by basically saying we're only going to have ever like a thousand company members. And in order to even apply, you have to have something like a global turnover of like 4 billion or something crazy. Mm. So he deliberately keeps it as like a really elite club for companies. And Davos itself grows into this thing where it is an opportunity to spend four-ish days with these really senior company representatives, and then ministers come too. Okay, I mean, I, p- taking off our world-weary cynical hat for just a second, because obviously it's very easy with a topic like Davos, I mean, some of the benefit of these kinds of events is truly just the habit of having four days in the diary at a set time each year for people who are otherwise incredibly busy and and have a hell of a lot of demands on their time and, and are dispersed all over the world. Every year you know that, Davos is going to go on. So you block it out in your calendar and you, and you make time to go. And as all three of us have managed ministerial diaries, worked in foreign services, that is valuable in and of itself. So Helen, did you, firstly, is that true? And secondly, did you feel like that was the value of it this year? Is just, you know, there's a ton of problems and having some people in the same room to discuss them is a good thing? Oh yeah, definitely. I think part of the, the most valuable thing is actually the serendipity that you can expect there of bumping into people, right? In such a close, tiny town, when you're walking up and down the promenade, you'll get some of the best meetings, right? You bump into sort of heads of states, you bump into like Sam Altman, you bump into sort of the heads of these multinational companies. And you just sort of, in addition to the meetings that you know you're going to set up back to back to back to back to back, you, you know you'll probably bump into some really interesting people and get invited to some things that you would never have the access to if you were sort of just doing meetings in New York, for example, because everyone is so dispersed. So in some ways, like, you know, everyone is trapped there for the week and you are guaranteed to be able to see them or track them down in some way or another. So I definitely felt that the value add for a lot of these folks. Does anything happen from that? You know how much I hate meetings because I think meetings are mostly just knowledge workers filling their diary and claiming giant salaries. Like, does anything happen though? 
I think it does. I mean, I think for a lot of these, I mean, not that I was in these, you know, huge, um, the, the meetings of these like huge multinational corporations, but I do really think that deals are done. People are introduced to other people that they need to meet. And then I guess there's, there's a certain, of course, like a certain element of like, we will agree to agree to meet at a later date. But the right. fact that people have met is sometimes that those echelons of, you know, international affairs, a big deal in itself. It's helpful. Yeah. So before, I, I mean, I want to get into what, what was actually discussed this year and, and your takeaways. But before we do that, you wrote in our newsletter, you wrote an introduction, just kind of a few little reflections on your experience there, pretty much along the lines of the discussion we've already had, you know, a little bit cynical, but largely like, hey, it's valuable. And boy, did we get some fiery responses from people, <laughs> including a bunch of people saying, I am unsubscribing because, you, I mean, essentially you are lizard people yourselves then. But wh- why do you think there is such a strong reaction to it? Like it's one thing, th- there are other big conferences with rich people discussing, you know, flying cars. Why is Davos, why do people hate it so much? The short answer is that it's so easy to mean, right? There's so many things about it. Like if you break it down to the components of like a snow town of, you know, in, in Europe, in the middle of the mountains. All the stuff Dimitri was saying, All right? the stuff that Dimitri was saying with like people trying to out VIP each other with that celebrity next door. I mean, there is also this celebrity element of people like Will I Am going to these things and other artists who are famous. I think it's just, it's, it's such an easy target, right? I mean, Dim, you had something interesting to say in our in our prep call. I think there's a little bit more to it than that, which is that it's the nature of the WEF as an organization versus the meeting. Because a lot mm. of these other meetings that happen, they just kind of, a meeting happens, people have a conversation. But the World Economic Forum is also a policy organization. So there is a secretariat based in Geneva that publishes papers, organizes meetings throughout the year, has a kind of policy agenda. They see themselves as the intergovernmental organization for private-public partnerships and collaboration, which is broad enough to mean it can mean anything. So they will publish things like, here's what we think cities of the future should look like, or here's what we think are four steps you can take on climate change, or here's what you can do with like credit card approvals. So that gives people more to attack because I think people then conflate the organization and the meeting quite a lot mm-hmm. where they're like, ah, the WEF has published a paper. Ergo, this is what these masters of the universe are going to be talking about in their shadowy meeting rooms at Davos. And that makes it sort of easier to attack them in a way that you can't substantively attack a meeting the content of which you don't know for like mm. some of these these other shadowy meetings that people attack. But as Helen says, it's also, they don't make it hard to, to attack them. It, it is like a ridiculous thing with like Swiss army snipers in snow blinds with sniper rifles covering the entrance and like Russian oligarch parties. It is weird and people should be kind of, I can understand why people are a bit ant about it. Yeah. I mean, if you measure it by certain things, right, the amount of private jets, the amount of fur that I've seen, the amount of Hermes Birkenbags, et cetera, I think if you just look at by those metrics alone, it's a very easy thing to hate on optically. Fair. And we know that affairs is all about optics. Not that I own any of those things, by the way. I will say there is this kind of something that I've never understood about all of this kind of the conspiracy theories is like Davos makes it slightly more convenient, as we were saying, for these people to have a sequence of conversations with one another in a short space of time. 
when I used to accompany the Australian, say, trade minister, they would sit in a room and a new person would come in every 25 minutes. And the trade minister would meet all of these people back to back to back to back to back. They would almost not even participate in the formal program. It was just like this amazing opportunity to often talk about like potential investments into Australia, where someone's like, I'm the Singaporean pension fund. We're thinking of pouring $2 billion into Australian infrastructure, but we have this concern. And the minister would be like, oh, okay, let's talk through that. So that's kind of, that. that's good. But it's not like if Davos didn't exist, Elon Musk wouldn't be able to talk to like the head of BlackRock. These people have phones. I think the, the speed dating point there is a really good one. It's like, there is still no... If you know people already, it's one thing to pick up the phone and say, hey, Bill, let's do the deal. If you don't, it's kind of a good place to get all that first weird introduction stuff done. Helen, why don't we move on to the actual substantive 2024 Davos? We've kind of pontificated about the purpose of Davos. I've never been. I'm not itching to go based on what you just both said, but um, try to convince me that it's worthwhile by telling me what happened actually this year. Is there any like key takeaways, stuff that you think was, was worthwhile? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that it's hard to summarize what exactly happened, but I will say that the key (laughs) takeaway is probably AI and a lot of focus on AI and climate. I think that those are the two kind of key things I walked away with thematically about that people were really optimistic on. And by thematically, you mean you just like a lot of meetings, a lot of events, a lot of panels, everyone was talking about climate and AI. Yeah, so, you right. know, those like word clouds, I'm sure that if you pumped in all of yeah. the sort of headings and the titles of every single event at WEF this year into one of those, AI and tech and climate change would be probably like the top, right? And what I mean by that is not only sort of events being held with those buzzwords in the title, but also meetings that were held specifically for businesses to find investors. So I think one of the, these, uh, as an example, one of the like key flagship events was held up on top of this hotel that was looked like the Grand Budapest Hotel. And it was a green tech speed dating thing. So all these like new green technologies got up there to meet with investors and had a full day of finding out how they can make money and, you know, get investments. So I think thematically, those two were really the the two winners. And then in terms of geography, the geographic regions, Middle East was, of course, a huge focus with a lot of people thinking about the um, Israel-Gaza conflict and what comes next. Is that sort of, are we going to talk about reconstruction? I mean, I think the Qataris were really forward-leaning in trying to get reconstruction efforts and people to start thinking about the next steps. There were, I think, sideline events, of course, which I was not invited to, to talk about the uh, next steps for ceasefire, which we saw today. We reported on this in Intrigue. That has been scuttled. And then I think, you know, uh, this was a couple of weeks ago now, but three weeks ago, but we also talked a lot about Europe and the future of Ukraine. Zelensky himself was there and he shut down the entire promenade. I remember this because I waited outside for two hours in the freezing cold to get through to dinner. And The real victim of the Ukraine war. I am <laughs> correct. The real victim, a deprived and hungry Helen, uh, trying to get her Nepali dumplings. But, you know, I think he, I think it's reported he met with 80 plus security and military and sort of political leaders to try and gather more support for Ukraine. And then, of course, I think the other sort of geographic slash thematic issue that people worried about was global supply chains and the Houthis sort of Red Sea situation that we are still seeing unfolding now. One thing that was really absent, I will say, John, is China. 
So China publicly, like the sort of the government of China was definitely there. I think there was uh, reports of there being more Chinese representatives, officials, right, than in previous years. But what was absent was the Chinese companies. So in previous years, Jim, you probably would have seen Huawei or ByteDance or sort of any other big, you know, Tencent, the huge state conglomerates uh, or state companies there private sector companies, sorry, but this year was noticeably absent. And instead, in their place, it was like Gulf states taking their place in the promenade. So we had like a huge neon house that was representing Saudi interests. And the Chinese companies really took a backseat this year. Is there any reason for that other than just kind of general vibes and flow of the word cloud is a great way to put it. Like the Chinese companies are not at the top of the word cloud. AI, clean tech and Dubai is. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, for the Chinese officials, their key, you know, key agenda, I think, was trying to convince others that China's open for business again and that they're a friendly investment environment and that, you know, hey, come back here. But for the private sector, I think it was very telling that going to somewhere like this is really expensive, right? So I don't think it was on the yes. top of their agenda to kind of try and gravitate. It's a, it's a bad with, signal if you're if you're kind of, you know, tightening your right. belt or if your economy's in trouble, right? Yeah, But in my experience, a horde of Chinese officials descending on a town is not the best way to demonstrate to people that you're open for business, given the bureaucratic demands of Chinese delegations, in my experience. Um, (laughs) Dim, anything to add? Given You didn't go this year, right? Um, You were down in... He heard down I was the coming. mountain in Ge- yeah. <laughs> you were you were down the mountain that in Geneva. Definitely not big enough for the both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any key reflections from behind the computer? I mean, you're, you're still kind of close to there, so I imagine it kind of gets big in Geneva in that sense as well. People probably tack on a trip to Geneva <laughs> afterwards, right? A lot of my friends who who manage delegations came back broken as people. <laughs> describing it as sort of having gone through hell, which definitely squares with my experience because managing a delegation, like your minister will insist that they know their way around and don't need anyone to accompany them. And then will call you 17 minutes later to say that he is stuck in a snowdrift. He doesn't know where he is. He is 15 (laughs) minutes late to a 10 minute meeting and he needs you to move all 32 meetings he has that day by 15 minutes back in order to accommodate the like coffee shop he just saw that he wants to duck into. Oh my God. It sounds like I'm exaggerating. I might be underselling it. There's a lot of trauma. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) I, I will say something that I think is interesting from what Helm was saying is that there is a kind of seasonality to who dominates the space. A lot of the time it is tied to which leader is coming. So when Modi was there, absolutely everything was covered in like make in India stuff. And they booked out like entire areas of the promenade. When Xi came, there was a lot of excitement immediately after Trump's election when there was this sense that, oh, the US might be like pivoting away from the world. People forget this now, but there was about a five-month period where China was pushing the line that they were going to step in and save multilateralism, save global leadership, and China was going to be this like replacement for a US-led order. And then history happened and it didn't quite work out that way. But that year, everything was like, everywhere was Chinese companies, everywhere was Chinese events. So there's there's that seasonality to it as well. How much of that is organic slash planned, you know, in the sense of, I think, I think what you've nailed there is kind of, you know, you've got the anchor of a big figure who comes and then whatever their topic of choice or their expertise kind of dictates 
the rest of the stuff. But is that planned by the WEF secretariat or is it kind of like, oh, Xi Jinping's coming, we better compile some stuff around him? So what actually happens in practice is effectively there is a bidding war every year. There is a limited amount of space, both in terms of apartments, hotel rooms, and storefronts in the village. Like physically, there are only so many spaces. So every year, the residents and the shop owners of Davos are absolutely bombarded with requests and ineffectively like an auction. And companies and governments desperately try to secure space. So it kind of comes down to who wants it most in terms of who's willing to drop the big money. So, I mean, but that's interesting because then that kind of means that it's an auction for who wants to push their narrative to the global forefront, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of like, oh, well, I'm trying to sell my um, my Neon. technology. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm trying to sell my technology, but I don't really care that much. You know, I'm it's, it's, a, it's a middling year for us, so let's not bid. And then AI, well, hey, we've got a zeitgeist here. We've got to, we've got to ride the wave of public interest. So we will actually bid more than others and continue yeah. that train rolling in a way. That kind of stuff is handled by, by like individuals buying space. There is also the formal program of the WEF that the WEF secretariat kind of develops in-house in collaboration with lots of actors. So they put on a whole bunch of panels mm-hmm. and they can in- allow people to have side events where they basically give them some space to just go like, if Greta Thunberg wants to come and call us all monsters, they will provide her the space to do that and then like build a panel around her. So they have a little bit of control over the formal program, but like most of Davos isn't the formal program. And that's not where the like super high elite people spend most of their time. So what I'm drilling at here, that's all very interesting insight stuff. I didn't know what I'm drilling at here is like, what can we take away from each Davos? Like what does the fact that Helen, you mentioned. I got no swag. (laughs) Oh, I got a free dates from the Neon House and I got sucked into it, not knowing that it was Saudi Arabia. Dates as in the fruit. To clarify for our listeners, she means the dried fruit. Correct. Sorry, yes. (laughs) I was hungry. They said, hey, free dates, come in the house. (laughs) (laughs) But my my, my point here, I guess, is that you've talked about the topics that were raised. Those topics were probably like always going to be raised, right? They're on top of everyone's minds, the Houthis, the, you know, the Red Sea stuff, all that kind of stuff. But what I'm drilling at with with how Dimitri's kind of describing how the Davos agenda gets set is what are the key takeaways for the 2024 that we can take away from Davos if we just drill behind the scenes. So was there any, was there a preponderance of shop fronts bought out by AI companies? Were there sessions that surprised you because you'd be like, oh, I didn't expect them to kind of feel like they needed to be here, but they were. Is there anything that we're missing from, you know, other than just kind of the headlines of, uh, you know, all the main stuff was talked about? I think in some ways Davos sort of sets the tone for the year, right? And I will say that the tone of the year was quite optimistic, particularly in terms of money flowing into, as I said, clean tech, AI, all of the sort of buzzwords, whether or not that actually eventuates and generates sort of like good things for society is a different question. But I will say that people were more interested in not focusing on the doom and gloom at Davos and looking to sort of look at the opportunities instead. So I thought that was really positive in some ways and setting like, you know, the global elite or the global economic sort of establishment felt really positive and optimistic about 2024. And that sets a direction for sentiments of, you know, the markets and global leaders. 
was there anything surprising? Like were, were, were oil companies there, fossil fuel companies, these kinds of kind of more yes. old world industries trying to kind of, because I'm, I'm sort of, if you've got all these government folks in town, then that's an opportunity to lobby and to kind of remind people, hey, you know, which side of your, your bread is buttered? On that, you know, John, we, as you know, I met with a, well, I didn't meet with, I got invited to a, a party with Twiggy Forrest, who is, of course, Australia is one of Australia's billionaires and a huge resources tycoon. And, you know, didn't hear anything about fossil fuels. All I heard was carbon, 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 or hydrogen, sorry, not carbon. <laughs> the opposite of carbon. <laughs> he does a lot of green stuff in Europe, though, doesn't he? He's, he's big on promoting that. Yeah, he is. But I think that he wasn't alone in sort of resetting and reframing the agenda, right? Because, of course, this was in January, so it happened a couple of months after um, COP, which was the climate change negotiations in um, Dubai. And people were still coming off the high of that and thinking about ways of pivoting away from fossil fuels. So even though I guess my takeaway is that even though the fossil fuel companies didn't take centre stage, they were certainly not, you know, in front of the promenade holding you know, prominent positions to appeal to participants. They were behind the scenes redesigning that narrative, I think, or reshaping that narrative to be more focused on green tech and renewables. Dimitri, anything to add there? Well, it's just, I guess, an important point for people to think about at home in conceptualizing climate change versus these companies. Two things to realize is firstly, because climate change we're not going to phase fossil fuels out overnight. So these companies are not panicking. They know Mm -hmm. they're going to keep making money for the foreseeable future. And secondly, because they are so well capitalized and so experienced in the energy game, a lot of these companies are going to be at the forefront of green technology and they're going to make a ton of money from renewables. And so they are just gradually pivoting the nice thing about having a billion dollars is that pretty much whatever happens, you can probably find a strategic investment. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely surprised, you know, the, the vibe at Davos was somewhat optimistic in part because they, yeah, they, they feel like, they, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they feel like they, they're going to be okay. And they feel like there is opportunities and money to be made. Mm-hmm. One of the stories I thought that was interesting that there was a story that came out that they asked participants to rate threats in terms of like global threats and what they were worried about. And I think it was misinformation came out something like first, yeah, which was an interesting insight into zillionaires. Presumably a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's so many elections in 2024 and people are worried that misinformation is at a extra effective in 2024. Or perhaps, Dimitri, if we want to take the other side of it, it's that those kinds of folks are worried they can't, that they've got less of a hold on the global narrative than they might have had previously Mm -hmm. because of misinformation, the splintering of where people get their information. And that chaos is is concerning to folks who've got a lot of money in, in places that rely on not chaos. And I guess they're also probably most at risk of getting, you know, deep fake targeting or sort of disinformation, misinfo stuff, right? That's why they're like, oh, we should regulate this and make sure that we don't get targeted. I think it was last year where a fake account set up to look like a pharmaceutical company tweeted out something like, our penicillin is free now. And their (laughs) stock price dropped by like 37%. Yes, my goodness. So, so, so given given that the stock market is almost entirely vibes, I can imagine <laughs> mm-hmm. if I had a lot of money tied into stocks and bonds, I'd be pretty nervous about the idea that some kid in the basement can deepfake a video of me as the CEO announcing we're just going to, I don't know, 
shut down all our oil wells while I'm on vacation and I come back to a company in flames. Okay, so Helen, quickly, was it worth going to Davos yourself as a person who kind of sits on the outside of things? You're not kind of there to have thousands of meetings with people who are begging for your favor. Was it and, and excuse me for describing you this way. Was it worth being a hanger on or was it a waste of your time? Did you not hear she got dates? I got dates. I got plenty <laughs> of dates, John, free dates. Look, I think in, in short, it was worth it purely because I think I enjoy the spectacle and I think I'm always there for like a learning experience, right? It was a huge schlep to get there for sure. Don't get me wrong. I stayed at a town that was like two towns over and then commuted in every single day because that's just the nature of it. Unless you can afford $3,000 or 3,000 Swiss francs per night for a room, then you are literally slipping it up mm-hmm. in, in two towns down the road. So it, it was definitely worth it, even if it's just for the people watching itself and the sort of social experiment of watching these people trying to out VIP each other and posture and sort of, you know, I think one thing that we didn't talk about was the scene, right? And I'm putting scene in inverted commas here because so much of what happens is the after parties. And the parties that are not advertised and you don't get invited to and you have to be told about. In fact, I actually remember getting invited to one of these parties and by, you know, a, a colleague who said to turn up to this place at a certain time. I turned up and sort of the bouncers took one look at me and said, no, nope, the party's not here. And I was like, okay, I'm off. And then the, my friend was like, why aren't you at the party? And I was like, well, I, I, I was told it wasn't there. But of course, it, it was there. They just decided that I wasn't the right fit to attend the party. I ended up going back and getting into the party, but... That's the sort of to be fair, that happens happens. to me at parties all the time and has my entire (laughs) life. Like, this isn't a club, sir. Correct. Yeah, that's not music you hear. There's nothing happening here. Goodbye. It just sounds like a like a mean girls on steroids. Correct. Yes. Am I Katie in this situation? Perhaps. I'd like to probably think that I'm actually the two friends of Katie who were like the alternative gods who were like, this is such a scene. But I will say that, you know, I, I go once and I probably, I'm not sure if I will go back again. Is that fair? Yeah. And I'm going to put you both on the spot before we wrap up our conversation. If we take the core of what's good about Davos, the idea that people can meet, the, pe- the getting people together in the same spaces, what would each of you do to design a global annual meeting, what would you change about Davos? Where, or or what, how would you redesign the idea to make it actually mm. useful, to make it less all the stuff that we've talked about being ridiculous about Davos? What would you do? Would, would you just change the location or would you invite different people? How would you make it actually effective and less, I guess, memeable or ridiculable? Or is it just impossible? Is the Guardian always going to like to throw stones from the outside? I don't think it's impossible, but I will say like make it a sort of intimate setting that's quite remote, but a little bit more accessible, right? Maybe not in the mountains in the middle of winter, but make it somewhere that's sort of, you know, a, uh, I don't know, like a smaller, perhaps an, an island or a sort of reserve or somewhere where you are able to get a lot of people together in the one place and allow that serendipity and sort of speed dating and networking to happen organically. But I, what I will change is I think some of the invitation list of people. I wonder whether there's enough reflected of people from the global south, if we're going to use that term. And I wonder if there's a lot of, uh, there's enough reflected of people who are not in the sort of institution who don't come from old money, who don't come from the sort of big corporations around the world. What do you reckon, Dim? You've got so much more trauma to process. I can see it on your face. No, I think I think you're, you're 100% spot on. On John's frequent references to The Guardian, the WEF is one of those magical institutions that gets walloped by both sides of the horseshoe in the sense that like <laughs> yes. The Guardian thinks that they are fascist, 
And then like the fascists think they're a pinko conspiracy and somehow like all sides of politics are united in hating the, the WEF. But I don't think there's too much you can do about that. As Helen said, I think the invite list is key. You do need that core of especially the big investors. The big investors are big companies because that is the draw and that is fundamentally why people are there. If you took the thousand companies that they invite as their different levels of partnerships and reduced that to a hundred and gave 900 passes to small and medium enterprises or civil society groups, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be Davos anymore. The, the big guys would probably stop coming. But I do think that there is a potentially a healthier balance to set. I also think the WEF could be more proactive on some of the more social side, because at the moment the WEF does the formal program. And then a lot of the parties that Helen's talking about are privately organized either by high net worth individuals or by companies. And that really creates a sharp dichotomy where in a lot of the times when you see videos go viral, I think people need to understand this. When you guys see videos go viral of like some Dutch professor really laying into the world's rich and being like, pay your taxes. Mm -hmm. He's doing that in a room of 30 people of whom 28 are fellow activists and academics because the ultra-rich aren't necessarily in that room because they're off doing other things. So the WEF formal program does have some super, like people do come to bits of it, especially when they are on a panel. They're like ultra-elites, but they are mostly doing other things as as Helen was describing. So Mm -hmm. I think if the WEF kind of made more of an effort to create must-go-to spaces that are super fun where more of the hoi polloi who don't run $4 billion plus companies could attend and have those serendipitous interactions, I think that would help because like even a lot of these high net worth guys, they're not cartoonish villains. Mm -hmm. A lot Mm -hmm. of them are willing to have conversations with normal people. They just very rarely meet any. And this could be the opportunity because no one's surrounded by their army of aides. Dimitri, I uh, rarely like to compliment you because, you know, we're, we're adversaries, if nothing else. But no, jokes aside, <laughs> I, I think that's a... Oh, you, you w- compete. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I aim to compete with you. No, I think, I think what you've just said there on two fronts is super, super insightful. One, the purpose of Davos isn't to be a UN space where every group gets to have their say. And, you know, I I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. I just mean like that Mm -hmm. isn't what Davos is for. It isn't for, you know, the global South necessarily to come and be heard on all their topics. There are places for that. But it is for people who are rich, who have money, who can actually fund things that need to be funded to have conversations and make decisions. But it is an opportunity also to get those kinds of folks more socialized into the real world. I, I was listening to a podcast recently with Bill Gates, who, you know, multi 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 billionaire uh, good guy by we've all heard of bill gates but, john yeah. yeah by all account but good guy by all accounts he you know he he spent a lot of his money doing great things but the overwhelming feeling i got from listening to one of the podcasts is that he just has no interaction with anybody vaguely normal in his life he has people who yeah. work for him who might be relatively normal people but they work for him so they have to you know interact with him in a certain way and then the rest of his life is private planes and choppers and and fundraisers that i'm sure he finds you know terrible but not mm. normal conversations right and then he's probably one of the more well adjusted ones when you start going to like elon musk and all the silicon valley folks 
it get, it just goes out on a scale of like, wow, when was the last time you had anything approaching a normal interaction? And so Dimitri's point there of like, okay, let's keep Davos as this idea of global elite people coming together to have conversations, but let's see if we can just kind of add a little eyedropper of, of normalcy by including spaces where people mingle. I think that's a, a really, really good reflection without being Davos kind of like... Just I find it so tedious to bang on about like, oh, how these places aren't inclusive and like we should, you know, tax the rich. It's like, of course, we all agree furiously with each other, but it's not actually making any difference on the margin just to yell at from not Davos. So I think I think what you said there is a is a good point. But let's okay, so let's wrap wrap that conversation up. Is there anything else you'd want to add about this year's Davos in particular? Is anything you're expecting 2024 to be about other than what we've said? Is nothing surprised you, Helen, Dimitri? No, I mean, listen, it's, it's, uh, I think it was Davos as usual in a lot, in a lot of ways. It's one of those things where it's not making news a week after it finished, which is pretty normal for a Davos. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Right. Well, um, that gets us off to a cracking start for 2024. We're going to get back to our regular cadence of recording these weekly as much as we can, discussing the big issues. This one was a good one because both of you had personal experience with it. But next week, we might get into sort of more single issue kind of things and, and deep dive like we did at the end of last year. Before we go, you remember that we do our small talk, our icebreakers at oh, Davos. No, Perfect example. What did you, what were you walking into rooms in Davos breaking the ice with Helen? Something interesting, something, I guess, how did you make believe that you belonged in Davos? Well, you know, that introduction I had in the uh, intrigue edition of Davos, which was that Klaus had said, you know, people are at Davos, sort of one connecting factor is that everybody who has that dirty sort of like mark of the muddy sledge from walking up and down the promenade from the melting snow. I stupidly did not dress well for Davos. So I wore my white coat and my leather pants, which were covered in mud. So that was my talking point to folks. No better way to signal that I'm an absolute noob than that. And Very the lack relatable. of fur. So, you know. Dimitri, any, anything you're taking to cocktail parties to pique people's interest? Well, I think to stay on our WEF topic, when, when I want to entertain people or give them some hope about what Davos represents and sort of, John, you, your idea of making the ultra-coddled rich experience real life, there is nothing that is more egalitarian than watching a trillionaire slip and fall on his butt <laughs> because he felt he was too cool to wear moon boots down a hilly, icy slope, and he just keeps falling over and slipping, and there is just... And meanwhile, someone is just walking past him, a normal person wearing sort of iron spikes on the bottom of their boots, and they look ridiculous, but they are still vertical. Gravity cares not for net worth. Indeed. All right, well, I've got I've got something... Um, given I wasn't at Davos, I've been... You know, not not focusing on the on the icy world of how to look good. I came across something I found very interesting. I'm, I live in America, obviously, as do you, Helen, and I, I'm always fascinated by why American cities feel so hard to navigate compared to European cities. Every time I go to London, which is a, a sprawling metropolis, but you know, you can get truly from one side to the other in about thirty minutes on the tube. I'm always like, what? Why? Why is this in America? That you know, an hour to the airport, even though it's eight miles away. And I came across a blog post which had using, I think, ChatGPT or, or one of the, no, it's probably like Dolly, one of the image generating AI companies these days that speculated on what a car optimized UK would look like. 
So the idea that America was built largely after the invention of the car, optimized its cities to around highways, around parking, around these kinds of things. Europe being older obviously didn't, and it's a lot less car-friendly. I'll tell you, the results, I'll, we'll put it in the link because these photos are fantastic, but it's like oh, Buckingham wow. Palace. The grounds of Buckingham Palace is a giant car park. London, if it had those kind of elevated freeways that you see through Tokyo and Shanghai and, and other cities, wow. LA, it's pretty fantastic, but it's also just dystopian. And it, I think if, if you are in doubt of where the better quality of life is in terms of urban design. It's just so viscerally obvious when you look at a photo of London with cars everywhere that you're like, oh no, that that looks terrible. Let, let's not do that. So we'll put it in the links, but it's just, it was just a very interesting um, thought experiment. A good use of AI to imagine things, I mm. think. I read somewhere that the designers of one of the sort of SimCity style games initially made it like a realistic depiction of US cities and then had to change it because so much of your screen was covered in car parks that it just looked, <laughs> it was really boring and like boring visually game. ugly to play. So they had to like artificially hide all of the car parks so that players would have a good time. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's something that I think the three of us probably all furiously agree with, but I think more and more Americans are going to start agreeing their cities are poorly designed now that traffic is getting to a point where the previous convenience of having a city designed around a car when you could get anywhere in the comfort of your car in 10 minutes is now truly a hellscape. But anyway, we'll put we'll put the photos in, in a link. It's amazing. Uh, we, we did a web episode and you organically went full circle to 15-minute cities. I know, I know. Truly the bidding of George Soros. We are- There you go. Yeah, at your beck and call, sir. send the checks. <laughs> Microchip in, the, in my brainstem has just, just been activated to make sure I hit the certain <laughs> points. Um, all right, folks. Helen, thank you for your insights and, and it's a pleasure to chat as always. Thank you, John. Dimitri, pleasure as always. We'll be back next week with a topic that maybe I know a little bit more about so I can challenge your views. And it just doesn't feel right, Dimitri, if we're not furiously disagreeing about something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all get our orders from the same lizard people. Thanks so much, (laughs) John. Thanks, everyone. Dialogue editing, mixing, and mastering for this episode was done by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions.